Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Patrick Ishmael, Avery Frank, and David Stokes from Show Me Institute. Patrick, uh, it's a little bit more than a week since the legislative session ended. Um, now that you've had a little bit of time to uh, digest the action or the inaction, rather, uh, what are your thoughts? What are your What are your broad thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I think I feel about it today. You know, you can kind of sleep on these things and, uh, you know, maybe you feel better about it later on. And I feel about as uh, bad about this legislative session now as I did last week. And, you know, there were a handful of things that, that got passed. Uh, there was a bar on men and women's sports, boys and girls sports. We didn't really talk about that, but I think that was a pretty high priority. And personally, I think that that's common sense. Uh, sex changes on kids. Uh, there was a moratorium enacted, not a ban, which was kind of unusual, but it's good that you know we're at least establishing a moratorium on sex changes on kids. Uh, and then there was a, a change to how we tax seniors on their Social Security, and I think that that was a, a net positive development, net positive change. Uh, kind of in the mixed category is the uh, uh, enactment of a, a budget item to expand I-70. I think that that's probably a, a, a good thing to do at this point is to expand and, and probably repair I-70. The real question is, is this the right funding mechanism? About half of it is in debt. The other half of it uh, is in general revenue. I think that generally speaking, we've talked a lot about gas taxes and tolling in the past. Uh, so uh, the project, I think, might be deserving. The question is, is that the right funding mechanism? But the legislature did pass it. Uh, but the, the list of things that didn't get done is really extensive. Uh, school choice didn't get done. No, really nothing uh, of any kind got done. There was a, an opportunity to change or at least improve the way in which virtual schooling was funded. And the budget share uh, actually filibustered it in the last week. So nothing really got done on school choice. Parents' Bill of Rights, transparency and curricula, nothing got done. Uh, prohibitions on DEI and government basically subsidizing this kind of woke uh, agenda uh, with state tax dollars, that did not get barred. Uh, legally banning loyalty oath, we talked a little bit about that, about the University of Missouri system, uh, basically requiring potential job applicants to express their commitment to these kind of DEI principles. The uh, University of Missouri moved away from that, but you still, at this point, they could always return to it, and it has nothing to do with the other universities as well. Uh, you need to legally bar it, and the, the uh, legislature didn't do it. Tax cuts, the individual income tax did not get reduced. The corporate income tax did not get reduced. The personal property tax did not get reduced. Um, really, <laughs> nothing that could have gotten done got done. Uh, when it came to, to good tax reforms. Sports gambling didn't get done. We never really talked about that, but uh, that was a high priority, a high, uh, a highly visible subject didn't get done, and initiative petition reform. Again, something that we didn't really talk about, uh, but it was still something that was a high priority. I think that it's uh, it, it's just remarkable. You know, you have super majorities in the House and in the Senate, uh, and they seemingly can't get a whole lot done. And I, I think a lot of the responsibility falls to the Senate itself. It, it really is, you listen to them on the floor and they, they start debating some of these hot topics, uh, you know, that some of them campaigned on, you know, when they ran for office. And there is so much fear to take some of the hard vote. Uh, the DEI thing they could have passed in the budget uh, where they would prohibit DEI in state government. 
And it was a combination of Senate leadership and the super minority in the Senate that basically blocked it out. So it really is frustrating and disappointing, especially when you're talking about school choice and a lot of the common sense stuff like parents bill of rights. Um, I, I hope next year is better. Uh, but, you know, when you have a, a Senate that's more or less a center left chamber right now, uh, it's, it's really hard to see what exactly is going to get done next year that didn't get done this year. And it doesn't sound like the governor or the lieutenant governor have any interest in having a special session in the interim. They don't think that uh, there's a, a high enough priority item for them to bring the legislature back in session. So disappointing legislative session. Hopefully we'll, we'll see more later this year or next year. But, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a realist, too. So we'll see. I, I, I just want to disagree respectfully. I don't think that cutting the eliminating the state income tax from Social Security for Missouri seniors was a was a good move. I would much prefer. Now they didn't do this either, so maybe Patrick's thinking uh, best of best of the options. But I'd much prefer them see continuing to keep that income tax base as wide as possible, so that they could further lower the the rate. And it's scheduled to go down to become lower slowly but surely if certain targets are met. But I'd like to I'd like to see them keep that base wide and then lower the rate for everybody, including those seniors. Yeah, and, and, and I agree with David. I think that as a general matter, we want to make sure that uh, we're reducing taxes for everyone. I do think that there are some cases where we can uh, create modest carve-outs for folks who may be on a fixed income, for instance. Uh, but but it, it, like David said, it's much better to have broad-based tax reform than to have uh, special carve-outs. Uh, and as we're working our way down to a 0% income tax, uh, I'd rather see broader uh, reform than, than narrower reform. So, Patrick, when you were describing the session, you said it was frustrating and disappointing, but one of the words you didn't use was surprising. So this is more of a philosophical question, I suppose, but what do you do with a legislative body um, where you can just predict gridlock? It seems like year after year, at least in recent history, um, you did say that you are kind of optimistic for 2024, but if nothing changes, I mean, what is it a change in the calendar? Is it a process change or rules change? How do you see this uh, Congress moving forward to where they can actually get things done and don't have to wait? I mean, the deadline isn't even that motivating anymore. The kind of the posture through the entire session was, well, when it really gets down to brass tacks, they'll there'll be some deal making. and But that hasn't been the case. Yeah, I think that you really have to look at process and structure. You know, I was talking with Gary Nolan last week, and one thing that he raised was this idea of, of encouraging more single-issue kind of votes where if you are the carrier of legislation, you're the one that uh, basically allows or disallows uh, changes to it, which I think would be very interesting because then you might get some cleaner cleaner votes. Or uh, instead of having the, the counter pulled up by leadership, uh, the calendar is decided by basically who, which bills have the most co-sponsors. That would be, I think, a really fascinating way to get popular legislation, uh, at least before the body, so it can be voted on. But then you also have to look at the calendar itself. I mean, maybe you don't need five, five months to, to waste everyone's time when you're just going to do work in the last two weeks and, and be done with it. Maybe we need to have a legislative session that is two months long uh, and is every other year or maybe the same length, but is every other year. Uh, and then I think one other thing you can always look at, and this doesn't necessarily expedite the process, but I think, you know, we have a lot of representatives down at the Capitol. I mean, do we really need, you know, over 150 uh, state reps and uh, 34 senators? Like maybe we need to reduce 
the, the size of the body to these bodies as well. So, um, I, you know, I, I, it, it is wasteful, I think, to, to have so much money spent on these legislative sessions and to have very little to show for it at the very end of the year. And I, I think that the Senate would say, well, we have traditions and we need to allow for these filibusters. And, you know, we're a, a body of equals. And you know what? You know, another body of equals is uh, state taxpayers, state voters. And uh, at, at some point, business has to get done. You cannot just repeatedly year after year kind of fail folks uh, and not deliver on promises. You need to have clear promises that are uh, that you that you make early on and that you were going to follow through on. And when you're talking about priorities, when you're talking about the budget or when you're talking about legislation, it, the legislature really needs to go through them one, two, three, four, five. And until one gets done, nothing else gets done. Until two gets done, nothing else gets done. Because at this point, it really is uh, a, a lot of excuse making uh, for, uh, for a, a body that has no room for excuses. You're, you're talking about supermajorities. And I do think that the executive branch could do a lot better here in encouraging the legislature to, to pursue the priorities that they state at the outset. You know, this is a, a, a governor, I think, who can do a lot more and say a lot more. And unfortunately, I think the only time that you really hear from him most often is after the legislative session is over. This happened last year. It's happened again kind of this year as well. Uh, and $50 billion in spending later and no substantive tax cuts later. I think a lot more needs to be done from January to mid-May and uh, fewer excuses uh, into mid-May and, and June and beyond. Well, and David, the property tax, the property, uh, yeah, the property tax legislation that you were referring to, I think there's even some questions about how well it's written, right? That there, it, it leaves open some, some real questions, and so even some of the stuff that's getting across the finish line maybe um, isn't the highest quality. There's a lot of questions about SB 190, which is the bill that had both a property tax cap for seniors and the Social Security income tax elimination for seniors. And it was a bill where much of the much of what was finally passed was just done, as I learned in a conversation uh, yesterday, uh, was done on the floor, which is sort of why it went through without much attention, uh, because it the original language in it was was very modest and and only tangentially related, and then it all got changed dramatically on the floor, and then the house picked it up under the guise of well they had to pass something, and. And it's very confusingly written. It talks about, it. first of all, you can read it, and does it apply only to county property taxes, or does it apply to all property taxes? Uh, there's it, A normal person could read it either way. It's my understanding it probably applies to all property taxes. Um, how do you define somebody who's eligible for Social Security? Uh, it doesn't really do that. It says you have to be eligible for Social Security, but there's a number of ways to be eligible for Social Security or not, such as our teachers not eligible for this program because many public school teachers don't participate in Social Security. That's one open-ended question. But in the, in the end, it's just it's, – and, and then Cam Wax is running a story today just about how county collectors across the state are thoroughly confused – by what any of this means, because it's so unclearly written, and and uh, so go on and on. In the end, though, it's just bad public policy to freeze senior taxes and senior property taxes. And what I know is going to happen here is people are going to get their property assessments any day now. Many of them have already gotten them. They're going to get their property tax bills 
Later this year, people are going to scream about why their property taxes are going up so much. And then at the same time, we're going to take a significant portion of the electorate. And in many counties, we're going to freeze their property taxes so it can continue going higher and higher for everybody else. Like it's going in the absolute wrong direction in how we need to deal with property taxes in Missouri. So Avery, this was your first full legislative session. So maybe you don't have the same frog in boiling water. So what, uh, what was your takeaway from uh, your first session here? You know, I thought a lot more would get passed, especially being from like Tennessee where a lot of things were passed. I figured Missouri has a super majority like a lot of the other really successful states and they'd be able to get a lot passed, but it just seemed like there was just so much infighting that I just I couldn't even believe the amount of infighting there was. Uh, you got there pretty quick. Less less <laughs> optimistic. It only yeah, took it happened uh, very quickly. Only took a little while. <laughs> Well, sorry to hear that. Patrick, one more thing before we move on from the uh, legislative session wrap-up. So now everything heads to the governor's desk, everything that passed. Do you think there's any, reading the tea leaves here, do you think there's any chance that there'll be uh, vetoes? Um, There's always a chance, uh, but what it sounds like is the governor was pretty satisfied with what uh, is going to his desk. I think he said that uh, there were a few things that were maybe larded up, which is an understatement when you have a $50 billion budget, which is about twice what it was six years ago or so. Uh, So there may be some line item vetoes, but in terms of legislation that he railed against or lobbied against that got passed anyway, uh, it doesn't sound like there's anything obvious, but uh, as he's going through the bill with his his legal counsel and support staff, uh, if he finds something, there there could be a piece of legislation that gets uh, vetoed. Uh, but he hasn't said anything specific so far. And whatever vetoes he is considering are pretty narrow, it sounds like. Oh, well, I would love him to veto SB 190. David Stokes' lips to his ears. To the governor's ears. Right. Um, all right. So, Avery, uh, we've talked on this podcast a few times about short-term rentals. So your VRBOs, your Airbnbs, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the cities in the metropolitan area took some steps over the last couple of weeks to curtail some activity. What do they do? Yeah, so uh, St. Louis, city of St. Louis is coming up with a board bill to, you know, regulate short-term rentals there's a lot of pros there's a lot of cons that come with short-term rentals and i mean i applaud their efforts to come up try to come up with a policy that mitigates the cons as much as possible but also keeps the pros going forward when you say uh some of the cons what are what are some of the issues that people are worried about with these short-term rentals well i mean as a a former college student who's just lived in dorms and stuff i think the cons are a little little overblown maybe people get a little too upset getting a little persnickety but cons usually are nuisance you know you have a noisy upstairs neighbor all the time people coming in and out of the house you're like gosh like they're always stepping they're always making noise i hear music you know that that is an issue and if you constantly hear it that's that's not what you want when you're living in a residential neighborhood or you're living in a residential apartment you constantly hear music and stuff i mean that's the issue the biggest issue you usually hear with Airbnbs is like, okay, you live in a neighborhood, the two houses next to you get bought out, and now you don't have any neighbors anymore. You're not going over to have dinner. You always have out-of-towners, tourists next to you. It's like that really does break down a community. Like you're not going to be having your nice neighborhood parties and chats and watch parties. So that is that is a legitimate concern. And also, I mean, crime has been linked to Airbnbs, I mean, definitely in St. Louis, like we're very concerned about crime. And when you're having a bunch of rowdy people go get an Airbnb, go to the Cardinals game, I mean, that, I mean, that is a concern. But I mean, there's a lot of pros that also come with 
Airbnbs, there's a ton of revenue, obviously. There's a lot of opportunity for tax revenue if we do it the right way. There's competition for hotels because hotels have actually made a lot of inroads, a lot of gains recently trying to compete with Airbnbs. They've stream they've been trying to streamline their booking process. They've been trying to make their hotel experiences more, you know, diversified and different instead of just the same copy and paste room. And it lowers price for consumers. And it also provides an additional source of income for people for normal Missouri families. So I I think that we need to come up with a policy. This is an important thing to mitigate the cons, but also keep the pros gone. So it does seem to me that we're talking about two different issues with this. You mentioned the community aspect, and that was something that was referenced in the city of St. Charles. Mm-hmm. They, The city council decided there was going to be a one-year moratorium, and a lot of people said that they wanted something like that because, as you mentioned, people are buying houses. They don't feel like the neighborhoods are staying intact. And then you look at something like the city of St. Louis, where people are renting out apartment buildings and crime is an issue. So, and David, feel free to jump in here. Do we feel differently about when it's government um, acting when crime is the the motive versus some kind of vague community-based concern? Yeah, I I do. I do. And I'm not opposed to some level of of government regulation of short-term rentals at the municipal level. Uh, I'm I'm afraid it's going to go too far. Mm-hmm. I think in St. Charles City, it's going too far with an outright moratorium in the residential parts of the city. Not in the not in the sort of mixed use commercial parts of the city. It, it, to be fair to St. Charles City, but I think that's going too far with just an outright temporary ban, which I'm likely will become a permanent ban. I would mm-hmm. I would expect. Yeah. Uh, but in the city of St. Louis. Or in St. Charles, something as simple as making sure short-term rental owners register their STR with the city to make sure that they're collecting the hotel tax so that you're not giving them a, a, an advantage over normal hotels. Yeah. To make sure that they're, if they're, if they're Airbnb being or VRBOing constantly, they should be commercial property and not residential. So, and taxed as such. Most importantly, though, I mean, you need the police to know you need the city to know where this is happening a lot so that if parties, which, I mean, we talk about parties, and the city of St. Louis are not just parties with noise, loud music, and people staying up late. I mean, it's absolute utter mayhem with, with shootings and, and violence and on and on and on mm-hmm. uh, affiliated with many of these. And so you have to have a system where the city can find property owners who are consistently allowing these things to happen. Because it's not, let's not... Let's not be morons here. I mean, the property owners know what they're doing when they're renting these things out for parties. And if it continues on and on, you need to be able to increase the fines and then enforce the fines doing something, for example, like pulling the occupancy permit yeah. so that nobody's allowed to go into that facility, that that apartment or condo, until those fines are paid. And those fines will keep growing until it's no longer worth it to keep renting it out for parties. I absolutely feel that there's a role in St. Louis – and potentially other places too, for some level of reasonable regulation here. But but St. Charles seems to be an example of going, taking these concerns, which are more about community and less about actual crime or violence or impacts on people, a little more nebulous, and just outright ban them. I think that's going too, too far. And you're seeing similar things in Lake of the Ozarks, which is, of course, sounds a little crazy because that's a tourist area. That's People are supposed to go to the Lake of the Ozarks. It's going to be crowded here in a couple days for Memorial Day weekend. 
and some of those cities are considering bans on on short-term rentals out there as well and i think i think that's too far so in the lake of the ozark specifically um, so there are the, obviously the property owners who can decide what to do with the property. There's the government who can take action, but there's also, uh, you know, there's HOAs, there are, um, different buildings, have different rules. Do you think in the Lake of the Ozark specifically, we will start seeing an increase in condominiums that are built with a restriction on short-term rentals? You know, it's in your, uh, in your agreement to buy, you can't, le- uh, rent this out month to month, day to day, week to week, whatever it is. Absolutely. And that's an example of how, hopefully to a large extent, the market will will deal with this over time. And yeah, you could build a new condo building in Osage Beach with strict indentures that you cannot rent it out to anybody. You could also build a condo building in Lake Ozark with no indentures at all, with the realization that most of the people who invest here are going to invest in there to use it for VRBO and Airbnb. And there's nothing wrong with different places building for for different customers and consumers. So I hope that happens. And yes, I do think subdivision indentures and HOAs have a role to play in enforcing this. So it doesn't always have to be a a government mandate. And and yes, not the trick is that not every subdivision was created with an HOA, and you can't just impose one after the fact. The Missouri Supreme Court did liberalize the ability for HOAs to adapt over time uh, in a ruling a couple of years ago, but still, that was that ruling doesn't say you can create an HOA with strict rules out of out of nothing. That ruling said, and I'm not a lawyer, but it said if you have if you have an HOA with an ability to amend its bylaws, and not every HOA has that, that they're, it's now easier for them to amend them, basically. And that's a good thing, but it's not going to be the solution everywhere. Where it is the solution, more power to them. And I'd love to see new developments, and I expect to see new developments of all types come with either more strict indentures or zero indentures to adjust to various markets. Patrick, is this an issue on uh, your side of the state, out Kansas City way? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I know that at, at one point in the last month or so, and I guess I don't know where the process is uh, in, in the legislation, but the city council was talking about some pretty severe restrictions on short-term rentals. So I, I do think that it's a, a balancing kind of issue. I mean, you want to make sure the property owners have, to, to the extent possible, full use of the property for whatever purpose they want to use it for. But I think also when you have a, a system that's already in place where it's maybe zoned residential. Uh, folks may buy a house to you know live 20, 30 years there uh, with the expectation that they're going to be surrounded by neighbors and not by you know what would otherwise be hotel residents or, or visitors. So I think that you can strike a balance, uh, and I think you can obviously especially do that when you are talking about new developments where everyone's going into uh, any transaction with eyes wide open. Uh, but I do think that, that you need to have a balance going forward, not only for property owners, but also for the community that went into a system, saw the rules, thought that, uh, you know, 10 years ago, the rules would be pretty clear that you were going to either have owner occupants or long term renters next door to you uh, and make sure that everyone's interests are preserved, even as technology and, and evolutions and kind of the way that we live in this country, you know, change over time. And that's what Patrick is saying is, is so so important, not just for the short-term rental question, but for zoning reform in general. And I say this as someone who supports zoning reform around the country and in Missouri. And we should liberalize our zoning laws to allow 
more development in certain places. But I, I try to be sympathetic to the person who, you know, buys, makes the largest investment of their life, their home, under a certain set of rules, that, and they buy their property based on these rules. And I try to be cognizant of the fact that you can't just go in and willy-nilly change all those rules on those people and then be surprised when they're opposing you and against your zoning reform. So that's just the balancing act that deserves to be made because I don't want to just say that these people who've made these huge investments, that their concerns and their beliefs should be tossed aside, uh, while at the same time, I absolutely believe we need zoning reform in the state of Missouri. So Avery, what do you think's next for you, city of St. Charles, city of St. Louis, uh, the state in general? What, what do you think's next for this? Well, this is Airbnb. This is a worldwide issue. This isn't just like a, you know, like a St. Louis and Missouri specific phenomenon. There's been studies around the world, tons of different policies. And with like St. Charles, like being concerned about not having neighborhoods, there's been like very good policy in Denver and actually in Paris, France, which France doesn't do a lot of great things, but... They actually, if it's your, you can only have an Airbnb if it's your primary or secondary residence. So basically, if it's only your, like your side gig, like that's the only way you can have an Airbnb. Which, if you wanted to come up with some sort of compromise, like that could be like a, that could be a good thing in St. Charles. Your neighbors will still be there, like well, I don't know, three six months a year. You can still talk to them, but they're also renting out their house on the side. It's not some big commercial dude bulldozing through buying them all out for Airbnbs. This is still what airbnb started out to be and i think also st louis right now wants to do licenses for airbnbs as david has discussed before i don't think it's as good of an idea i think a lodging tax would be better putting the same thing that a hotel on because licensing for airbnbs people really have shown low compliance for it all around the world like 20 percent in san francisco and other places like that and if you want something that can have more reliable stream of income, I mean, of state revenue to replace something like a more harmful earnings tax, then I think a lodging tax on Airbnbs could help. Sure. Yeah, this does, to your point, this does seem like an area that's ripe for experimentation to me. I mean, it's relatively the short term rental, the rise of Airbnb, VRBO. We're still in the first, I don't know, decade plus of it. So maybe we're kind of in the the messy part of it where people try different things and we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, one thing, David, that a lot of people try every weekend in the city of St. Louis is parking to go to the various events down there. And over the weekend, uh, it was a big story around town. There were a number of break-ins in cars uh, during a Cardinal game. So some people think that something should be done. What do they think should be done? And what do you think about that? Well, this is something that hits home for a lot of people. A lot of people a lot of people go to Cardinals games, Royals games, Chiefs games, Blues games, I mean, around around this state. And to see, I drive downtown for Cardinals games all, all the time. I've got a share of season tickets down there. I'm lucky enough. I generally park in my wife's uh, <laughs> built. My wife works downtown, so her building has secure parking, and that's where I park. Then I try to ride a scooter to the stadium, but that depends on whether scooters are legal or not at the, at the time in question. But that's another issue. So, so we had about 30 cars broken into at a Cardinal game a few, a few nights ago, and it gets a lot of attention. It got a lot of attention because I think so many people can relate to it, as I said, and it's terrible. And it's just another sign of the, just the lack of law enforcement in St. Louis 
which I blame primarily on the failures of the prosecutor's office, not that the police shouldn't be held responsible for that at all, and other politicians. But hopefully the new circuit attorney in the city will, over in the, it's not going to happen overnight, but over the next few months, really get a handle on this and hopefully get going back in the right direction. Some people are suggesting, sort of blaming the Cardinals and the parking lot owners for this, as if, you know, blaming, sort of a blaming the victim thing. It might not usually be used for parking lot owners, but I think it is here. That somehow it's the victim's fault because there was a bill last year in, in the Board of Aldermen to require parking lots owners in St. Louis to upgrade their facilities, to install fences, to install lights, to install gates, to install security cameras. Uh, I think that's just way too far. As I said on Twitter in a clever enough tweet that I'm going to quote myself on, I don't think the solution to crime in the city of St. Louis is to require every property owner to become a fortress unto themselves. that's, That's sort of crazy that hey, you're a victim of a crime or people on your property are victims of a crime. You need to spend, we're going to mandate by law that you spend tens of thousands of dollars, if not for some of the larger lots, hundreds of thousands of dollars to increase security. We're going to, we're going to make this a private mandate. At the same time, some of those same people at, lobbying for that are probably criticizing the use of private security in some neighborhoods, which I have criticized as, as well. And, you know, you can't have it both ways here. I don't think mandating property owners to upgrade their own security as a result of the failures of the law enforcement system in the city of St. Louis is the way to go. And I'm struck by the cavalierness of how people say this as if eh, it's, a, it's a big business. You have no idea whether it's a big business or not. That parking lot might be owned by a big business, might be owned by a small LLC. We're going to make them, again, spend tens of thousands, I would say hundreds of thousands in some cases, in upgrades just so we can uh, we can hope that that makes things better. And there's no guarantee it makes things better because we at the Show Me Institute know that we have gated, secure, lighted parking. And a couple of years ago, the cars in our parking lot were, were broken into one day in the, in the middle of the day despite having all of that. So that's no guarantee it's going to make it any better. And I think that bill and that idea before the city should have been defeated, and it's a, and it's a mistake. Do you think that part of the frustration is that as the price of parking increases, that with that there is also an expectation, and it sounds like it is absolutely unreasonable in this situation, but if you're paying $35, $40, $45, for parking, that there's just some expectation that someone will stand at the lot and make sure your car's not broken into? Well, if you're paying $35 or $45 for parking, I suggest you park a couple blocks further away and pay a lot less for parking. That would be my main suggestion to that. Yes, and I believe in the same way that we talked about how over time I think markets will address the short-term rental thing in part. That you're right. I guarantee you there's some parking lot owners downtown saying, you know what, we're going to be the secure parking lot. We're going to build fencing and gates and lights and cameras, and then we're going to charge 5 or 10 bucks more per game, and we think that certain consumers will want that. And I guarantee you they're right that some people will say, well, if I'm spending 30 and I don't feel secure – I'll spend 40 and I'll be much more confident in the security of it all. It's, I think that's an economic calculation that would make sense to a great many people. And I bet some people will do that. 
I, but I don't think that a government mandate here, which is basically admitting that public safety in the city of St. Louis has failed, and we're going to put the onus on private property owners to spend their money to do it, I think that's a, a terrible policy. And just because I'm interested in the contrast, Patrick, especially as the Kansas City Royals discuss the possibility of a downtown stadium, currently uh, Arrowhead and Kaufman are in a, a sports complex. So there's a there's a big parking lot in the middle. What's some um, security like there? Are are there there issues there? My my question is really: Is this just a trade off of having a ballpark situated in the middle of your city, maybe as opposed to more out in a in a in a wider space? Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of the trade-off. There are certainly attendants that are wandering that sea of parking around Arrowhead and Kaufman, uh, and whether they're there for security or not. I, you know, my my uh, recollection of you know growing up in Kansas City and and you know going to the ballpark and going to the Chiefs games, I don't recall there being a recurring problem with car break-ins in that parking lot. Of course, the complex itself is kind of not in the middle of nowhere, but it's not close to anything else. If you're in the parking lot, you're in the parking lot for a, a really good reason. You're not going to be able to escape the parking lot very quickly. But I do think that the question of crime and security is playing a role right now. Uh, our listeners may know that uh, both the Chiefs and the Royals are looking at uh, getting new stadia. And uh the Truman Sports Complex, where they both play, is over 50 years old. Uh, you know, and I have talked extensively about why we shouldn't be subsidizing any new stadia anyway. They should pay for it themselves. And they are old enough that it makes sense they would have this discussion. Uh, but uh, the Royals, I think, last week announced that they were in discussions with North Kansas City, which is a city just across the river that's kind of circled by Kansas City itself, but a separate municipality. And North Kansas City is, sounds like with Clay County putting together their own package. And I guess part of the selling point they brought to the Royals is the idea that it might be more secure. And you can see downtown from this new location. So Kansas City has a lot of similar crime problems. And like you said, you know, if you move a stadium into the downtown area of a city, you're going to have a certain level of crime that you're going to have to expect. Uh, and I think that might be playing a role in what the Kansas City Royals are considering right now, where they might move it to what is more or less like an inner suburb of Kansas City that might have a better crime situation. Uh, and it's precisely because I think that the Royals have the same kind of concerns that the Cardinals might have that, you know, if you move downtown, what kind of security can you expect? Uh, what kind of control can we have over over the complex uh, and, and the security side of it? So, yeah, it, currently, I, I think that the Truman Sports Complex and the Royals and the Chiefs, they don't have too much crime out in the uh, parking lot apart from drunken related incidents. Uh, but it, it, when you're talking about break-ins, I think that is top of mind as both uh, organizations consider where their new digs are going to be. Uh, for maybe the, the next 50 years. The, the plan this year is to have a celebratory riot every time the Royals win a game, <laughs> but luckily that's happening very rarely. Uh, two comments on uh, Patrick's. First of all, as Clay County prepared pre prepare something for the Royals, I hope that they brag about their new lower commercial surcharge in Clay County as part of, as part of that deal, something the Show Me Institute wrote extensively about. And also I want to commend Patrick for his excellent proper use of the plural of stadium there it's not a, it's not a word where the plural is used very often it's a infrequent at best but uh 
But Patrick properly nailed the use of stadia. I've, I've, I've had to talk about those stadia many times before, so I'm well trained. The other thing I would add, too, is that a selling point of, of uh, moving to North Kansas City, assuming no subsidies or anything like that, North Kansas City doesn't have an earnings tax. Every person in the Royals organization would get a 1% raise if they moved out of the bounds of Kansas City proper. So that might be part of the uh, the selling point uh, being made by Clay County and North Kansas City. We'll see. It'll be an interesting uh, few months. All right. Something we'll keep track of. Uh, and we'll move to wrap up. David, what are you uh, keeping tabs on as we head into a holiday weekend? Well, just I think the biggest thing I'll be talking about for the next few months is property taxes. As people get their assessments, read them carefully. Consider appealing if you think they're too high because we've got multiple shoes dropping on this one. We've got efforts by the state, for, be for senior citizens or for child care centers, which we'll talk about in the future, to exempt them from property taxes. So that's going to raise property taxes on everybody else. But as you get your assessments, know that with the incredible inflation we've seen in the past few years, that the tax rollbacks that school districts and cities and counties are required to do this fall are likely going to be much, much lower than usual. So we might have the multiple shoe droppings of greatly increased residential assessments with greatly reduced property tax rollbacks, equation equaling in the end large property tax increases for homeowners when they get their bills in early November. So it's going to be a very interesting combination. And the state is moving with these exemption proposals for seniors and child care centers. The state is moving us in the wrong direction. Avery, what are you watching? So me and James will be working on four-day school weeks. It's a big problem. It's Well, if, we'll see if it's a big problem, but we'll be looking at how the students are doing, how the te- if it's recruiting teachers, how it's affecting finances, and if the parents like it. And Patrick? Uh, a little bit of session wrap-up. Uh, I have a few presentations over the next couple weeks on uh, things like DEI, so a little bit of research into that and development of those, uh, those presentations. But mainly I'm looking forward to the weekend, taking a break from all of it, going to the 500 uh, and, and uh, watching some, uh, some petrol-based automotives go around a... <laughs> A track for 500 miles so uh it's it, it's a nice relief i'm looking for the weekend i hope everyone has a great weekend too there you go all right well enjoy the weekend everyone as always plenty more at showmeinstitute.org thanks for listening and uh we'll talk to you soon david avery patrick thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>